Juan, almost inclined to just have these guys stay up here and sing those same four songs again and uh, bypass this next stage. And yet the Lord in His kindness has ordered at His Word to be preached, and so He is good in all that He instructs us to do. And so we'll do this, and then they'll come back. So Exodus chapter 1, it's on page 45. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, you could just grab that in front of you and turn to page 45. Otherwise, I'll begin reading in verse 8, and I'll read down through verse 21. We'll pick up verse 22 uh, next week, Lord willing. This is God's Word for us. And here's what God says. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they... uh, Break out and they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, uh, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, The more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all of their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom was named Shipra and Puah. When you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women uh, and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, uh, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. And did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why why have you done this? And and let the male children live. And the, the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are, uh, they are vigorous and, and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. You may be seated. Father, Thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. To have your word is to have a very treasure of your revelation. And we're thankful. Now help us to look at this word that we've just read. Be be present with us by your spirit. Be at work in our hearts and minds. 
change the way we think, change the way we feel, change the way we live. Transform us through your living and active word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've now continued our study in the book of Exodus. I want to remind you of one of the main themes uh, that we will discover as we plod through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus heavily stresses the Lord's desire for His name to be known. Known first among His people. That, that, that his own people would know that, that he is the God who rescues his people from bondage and brings his rescued people into relationship with himself. God releases his people from bondage so that they experience the true freedom to love him and to trust him and to obey him and to worship him above all else. But then the Lord desires that his people who who know him would make his name known to the nations, to all peoples. That's the quick and skinny of the book of Exodus. What we will zero in on this morning is something of the sad and tragic portrait of what life consists of where the name of the Lord is not known. In fact, reflecting the the beautiful literary design and structure of the book of Exodus, the name of the Lord, Yahweh, is, is, is not uh, stated in these first two chapters of Exodus. We, 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 we don't hear his name spoken until chapter 3. And while chapters 1 and 2 give reference to God, they do not involve or entail the Lord's name. God is at work in chapters 1 and 2. Nevertheless, we get a glimpse of, of the state of life where the reality of the Lord is not known. And what is the reality of life where the name of the Lord is not known? Where, where the Lord is not known? Where His name is not trusted in and loved and obeyed and worshipped? There is bondage. Bondage of all sorts. But here we see in the book of Exodus, in chapter 1, we see a very literal, tangible, physical bondage. A real enslavement of a people. Because neither the people nor the ruler of the people know much of anything about the name of the Lord. You see, how practical is the Lord? I don't know, how relevant is freedom? Only the Lord provides freedom. Oh, there are facsimiles and knockoffs and other versions, but only the Lord provides freedom. And where the Lord does not provide freedom, there is not freedom. There's only variations and varieties of bondage. 
Two things I want us to look at. First, I want us to see the affliction of life without a Redeemer. Second, I want us to note something of the anticipation of life from a Redeemer. That second point, I tweaked it from what's printed in your notes there. The anticipation of life from a Redeemer. So, first, the affliction of life without a Redeemer. Verse 8 gives us our context for where we are at with things. It says there, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You could say he didn't know Joe. In other words, the present regime in Egypt wished to move past the era and the policies of the influence of Joseph. No longer would we appreciate what Joseph had done for Egypt. The Lord had used Joseph mightily. He was of great help to the pharaohs of his time. And yet Joseph was always quick to point out and to remind Pharaoh it wasn't him. It wasn't him who could interpret dreams. It wasn't him who had the wisdom to, to know what to do in the time of famine. It was, the, it was the Lord. Joseph was quick to remind Pharaoh that Pharaoh's blessings were coming through Joseph, but from the Lord. Not only had God used Joseph, giving him wisdom, giving him insight, giving him ability to, to keep Egypt fed, uh, but he used Egypt to, 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 to elevate its status throughout all of the region at that time. So really, when we talk about not knowing Joseph, I would suggest to you, along with no longer being influenced by Joseph, what is really being pushed back is reverence for Joseph's God being set aside. It's time to move past that era uh, and so now we have a new king. He doesn't know Joseph, but more tragically, what I'd suggest to you, he doesn't know Joseph's Lord. Now, tragically, what I'd suggest to you is that even the Hebrew people, functionally at this moment, do not know Joseph's Lord. Something that we just read, if, we're, if you're following along in the, our Bible reading program this year, we just finished up the book of Joshua, and something Joshua said to the people of Israel in chapter 24, he said for them to remove the idols that they had worshipped beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt. In other words, they were idolaters in Egypt and beyond. This, this new king who doesn't know Joseph, who doesn't know Joseph's Lord um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't, therefore, um, live in freedom. He's not a free king. He's a king. He's in, he's, he's in bondage. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't govern a people for the good of the people. You, you only have that kind of sense if you know the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, then you don't know that you're put in a position of authority for the good of the people. You think you're put in a position of authority to rule over the people, to, to, to keep them under you, to control them. It's power, not service. 
The new king, ironically, is himself a man in bondage who, 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 who lives with this, the, the, the notion of lies, not truth, but, but, but whose bondage lies in, 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 in the paranoia that he has. I mean, what indication has there been that the people of Israel would, would side with their enemies and go to battle against them? This, he's just thinking this. Look, if you don't know the Lord, then you are ruled not by truth that sets you free, but you are ruled by lies, which, which fosters paranoia, which gives you an insecurity. And I get that. If you don't know the Lord, you should feel insecure. And he's filled with envy. He's filled with ethnic hatred. And in, and in such a, a horrible... I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a loss of, uh, that is a, of historic epic proportions. We're talking about a ruler that has a loss of the knowledge of the Lord. And so he, in his paranoia, says in verse 10, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and uh, escape from the land. Therefore, let us deal shrewdly with them. Boy, if that is not a, uh, a favorite political means... I don't know what is. Let us deal shrewdly with them, i.e., let us control them. Therefore, we're told they, they set taskmasters over them, uh, to, to verse 11, to afflict them with heavy burdens. You see, where the name of the Lord is not known, oppressors emerge to fill the void. And sadly, oppression emerges. Oppression sadly, tragically elevates and rises. Now, he does this incrementally. Verse, verse 11, let's just set some taskmasters over them. Uh, and, and, but what's the grand design of all of this? We, we've got to keep them from multiplying and spreading. So let's put a little bit of hard work on them. Let's make it hard for them in their, in their life. And, and, and yet, guess what? Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the, the, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The name of the Lord is not known in chapter 1, and yet that doesn't mean the Lord is not at work, even for the good of his people who don't even have a clue who he is. And so they, we've got to bump it up a notch. This, this uh, Pharaoh's patience is wearing thin. And so he goes to stage 2 in his incrementalism. So they, verse 13, they ruthlessly, so now we're, we've tacked on to shrewd, ruthless. 
So, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel. And an interesting term here for work or serve, it's used five times in verses 13 through 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service. There's the second term, same word, in mortar and brick and all kinds of work. There's a third time in the field. And in all of their work... Uh, there's a fourth time. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So five times in these thir- uh, verses 13 and 14, you get to see there's the, there's the emphasis going on here. The, the new palaces have been kicked up a whole nother uh, notch. I mean, the, when you're in bondage to power, the lust for power causes you to want to in, in, enact even more oppression, thinking that if I oppress a people even more, that'll give me even more power. But, where, but even though you're, you've got the most power of any wor- a nation in the world, if you do not know the Lord, you are a ruler in bondage. Ironically, that same term that's used five times in verses 13 through 14, it's, it's translated work or service or serve. As the book of Exodus unfolds, guess, guess who wants to be served and provided service and provided work? This is the very same term that the Lord will use of Himself and, and what He demands and calls and expects of His people. In other words, it's used to describe what Israel is designed to do before the Lord. It is the Lord who will call. And it's the Lord who is the only one who has the right authority to demand such service and worship and, 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 uh, and, 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 and service to Himself. It is as... As, as, the, as the, our Lord himself would say in, in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. Pharaoh wants to be served as though he is God. So his politics have bled over into his religion. He wants of the people of Israel what is only belongs to God. That is the soul and the conscience of a person. Well, you think about it just from an interesting angle. How, did, how in the world did they just on a dime get there like this? Well, I suggest to you, you see an incrementalism. You see this gradually occurring. You see, you see that we're being told that this was done shrewdly and ruthlessly. And perhaps this week we even maybe saw baby steps of how do you get there? How do you get to where you can legitimately say it's right to oppress a large swath of people. You, well, you could say things like the 25% are putting the 75% at great risk. That seems kind of innocuous, pun intended. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and yet, if, if that's picked up and taken seriously, where does that go? Where does it go when it feels right it feels noble and good to oppress a group of people. Well, you do it shrewdly. You do it ruthlessly. That's how you do it. 
You don't just come out and be honest with you. Look, I just want to kill a bunch of people. Yeah, you, you know, that's, just, that's a hard line to sell. I, I don't even think Hitler tried that one. But you know, here are the people of Israel, and they are under the yoke of bondage, all because a ruler doesn't know the Lord. And, and, and yet, to not let them off the hook, they are not behaving like, and for all practical purpose, they don't know the Lord. And so, when, when a people do not know the Lord, then there is no end to the measure and kinds and varieties and variations of oppression that a people could experience. Read an interesting article this week that it was talking about a major university out east, and uh, as students were uh, being welcomed back to the campus this fall, uh, there were new rules in place to ban oppressive speech. In other words, there would be certain words that were not allowed to be spoken on the campus because, because these words oppressed people. Now look, I get that words offend, and I get that if, if, if I know of a word that offends you, if you'll tell me, I won't use that word. I don't want to offend you by my words. I'll, I'll figure out a different word to use. Uh, um, and, 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 and so on the one hand, I, words, words do offend, and we should be sensitive about the words we use so not to offend each other. But can I suggest that it's a bit of a stretch to go from how words offend to words oppress? I, I, be, I mean, verses 13 and 14 define true, genuine oppression there. Anyway, you want to know some of the words that can't be used on campus? The word freshman. I guess they're incoming students, but... Uh, Boy, and just like, boy, yeah, I, I would be like in jail. But, I mean, from the Midwest, you can't use the word you guys. Like, hey, guys, come on. Yeah, but, uh, picnic. Rule of thumb. Lame. Homeless. What? Those words oppress people, we are told. And I get it. I get it. We live in a very fragile time. And what I would suggest to you is the reason for our acute fragility is that we don't know the name of the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, you don't, you don't have freedom. You don't have strength. You don't have hope. You don't have peace. You don't have nothing. And, 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 and even a word spoken to you, picnic, uh, but what 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 oppressed you? This is this is the affliction of life without a redeemer. It could be in the most serious variety that we see, literally, physically, tangibly described in Exodus, or it could be in the host of variations and permeations and mutations that we see in our culture today. This is the sad portrait of a culture that doesn't know the Lord. Then we think about shifting gears to the second point, the anticipation of life from 
a redeemer. The incrementalism gets kicked up a whole nother notch in verse 15. The problem is, is that the hard work and the enslavement isn't achieving the desired end game, and that is how do we control and limit these people. Uh, and, and so Pharaoh has to call in some uh, Hebrew midwives. The king of Egypt, verse 15, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, the other Pua. And so the implication here, there's, there's, there's more than two of them that's being given these orders. Maybe these were the supervisors, I don't know. Or maybe they're just an, a sampling of, of the others. And, and yet the beauty is, from this chapter, does anyone know the name of Pharaoh? He's a no-name in the, in, the, in, the, in the pages of history. But you know who we know the names of? <laughs> we know the names of these dear ladies, Shipra and Pua. We, throughout all of history, we know these dear ladies' names. Why? Because they did something significant. These are truly heroes. And so it's, while, it's, while it's a moment of darkness... While, while Pharaoh's policies are, 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 are keeping up uh, the, the uh, 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 scheming, shrewd, ruthless rhetoric, uh, Pharaoh summons the Hebrew midwives and tells them to kill every Hebrew boy during the birthing process. Now, verse 22, I'll suggest to you, kicks it up even another notch, but that's next week. It's gone from the Egyptian uh, Pharaoh telling the Hebrew midwives to kill the boys to when we get to chapter um, verse 22 where the, the, uh, that Pharaoh seems to summon the Egyptians themselves to kill the Hebrew boys. Why are they going to these extremes? Well, it's something that's interesting. He, he said back um, er, er, earlier... Um, in, in verse second part, second part of verse twelve, when, when after they put them under the first wave of, uh, of of oppression, and then they multiplied, and and the the more they spread, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They feared the people of Israel. Where God is not known, there is a whole host and legions of fears that that will govern your heart and put you in bondage. And yet, in the midst of this dark, abusive use of political power, when, when the Lord is, was not known by rulers or by people, when the Lord was not known, then all there really is is muscle. All there really is is raw power, the might of the human will. When there is no greater, higher moral authority that exists for all peoples and all times, then there really is just the construct that is fleshed out by the will of human power. How do you get from life is precious to life should now be terminated? Of course, I'm wondering how do you get, for the last 50 years, our culture has catechized me with the religious tenet, my body, my choice. And now it's flipped on its head, and I'm told it's not a matter of your personal freedom or your choice. 
Do you see how quick things flip? When, when you don't have a transcendent moral authority like God, then it's just you. If you got the power to do it the way you want to, then I go for it. And yet in the midst of that, the Lord is at work. The Lord is at work. The Lord is at work in a very dark, sad, tragic moment in human history. Even though the name of the Lord is not named because people don't have enough sense to name his, his name, the Lord is at work. We are told in verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. Now that's a whole host of dynamics and issues there. But we do know this. While the Egyptians and Pharaoh feared or dreaded the people of Israel, oh, there were two ladies, at least two, and we know their names because they are famous throughout all of history. Two ladies who feared God and therefore did not do as the as the king commanded. They feared God, which in this context means that they lived as though uh, who God is and what God thinks is more important than anything else, even the fiat decision of a king. To fear God in this context means certainly to be honest and faithful and trustworthy and be upright. To fear God in this context means that you desire to do what God wants above all else. Let the chips fall where they may. It's to seek, it's to live with the sobriety that there are grave consequences from not obeying our Creator. I mean, but there's a conflict here. There really is. I, I, arguably, these ladies ended up lying to Pharaoh. Now, some commentators kind of spin it in a way that, and, and maybe they're right. But, but, and so, do you see that sometimes there's a collision of, 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 of moral absolutes that we have to wrestle with? A collision. We're, 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 we're not to lie. We're to be a truthful people. We're also told in scriptures that of of all people, God's people ought to be those who are first in line to submit to those who are over us. There ought to be a a, a default setting of submission uh, in, in our hearts, a joyful submission even. And yet, there's another absolute that says that we shouldn't murder. We shouldn't take innocent life. Do you see how these three dynamics are in conflict with each other at that moment? We're, we're ordered by Scripture, by our good God, to not lie. We're ordered by our good God to submit to those who are placed in governance over us. And we're told in Scripture to not murder. There's a conflict of absolutes uh, that, that, you know what? But what does the book of Proverbs tell us? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. These ladies feared the Lord, and so therefore they had the gift of wisdom to sort out these absolutes. 
what, Lord, do you want us to do? We are, we are beside ourselves in wrestling with being honest people, in, in, in being submissive people, and yet not being murderous people. Well, the Scripture doesn't leave it vague on what the Lord thinks about the choice that they made. The Lord honored them with their own families. They did seek to do the right thing. And in fearing God, they had the wisdom to discern. I don't mean this is quick and easy and fast and loose. Sometimes you and I are placed in very difficult situations. And for those of us who want to do what's right, there's sometimes those, those orders of what is right bump up to each other and make it difficult to discern But the Lord gives wisdom to all who ask. The Lord gives wisdom to those who fear Him. And I'll close with this. The irony of this passage is that Pharaoh, who thinks that it's his own will and his own power that is at work accomplishing his agenda... There is perhaps no one who is in greater bondage in this chapter than, than Pharaoh himself. He is in bondage to Satan to do his bidding. Ever since Genesis 3.15, we are told this. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. A woman will give birth to a son. And that son will bring about victory. That son will bring about freedom. And so there is something even more sinister (laughs) and yet more futile going on in this chapter than just the subjugation of the Hebrew people. No, because even Pharaoh himself is under a demonic delusion. He doesn't have the sense to know that he's being played, even though he thinks that he's the man in charge Satan knows uh, that this is a great attempt to try to thwart the redemptive purposes of God in his son. We, we will see in the Gospels that Herod will try this same end run. Herod will try to kill baby boys as, as well because they, he, he's being used by the devil again uh, to take out the one who would bring forth true redemption. So we read in Galatians 4... But when the fullness of time had come, now was it just the right time? When the fullness of time had gone, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to this is how it ties in with the book of Exodus, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. Ultimately, as we think about freedom, as we think about a people who don't know the name of the Lord, we, we, we run to the New Testament and we find the final revelation of God. Freedom is experienced through adoption as sons. And adoption as sons comes uh, about by the redemptive work of Christ. There is no other name given by which we must be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ, who will rescue us from our bondage, who will remove from us the curse that lingers over us, and who will adopt us as his well-loved children, that we might live in the joy and the freedom of Christ. Father, thank you. Thank you for the name of Jesus. Thank you that all who know Jesus experience 
full, complete, final redemption. Thank you that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Thank you, Father, that you give us freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not freedom that we now pick and choose what we want to do and be our own man and call our own shots, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us enough that you give us the freedom so that we now have the capability and the desire to trust you, to follow you, to love you, to obey you, and to worship you. With such freedom... No one can place us under bondage. May we walk in that freedom this week, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.